Let's face it, running a construction company can be chaotic. As business owners, we wear a lot of hats and we're constantly putting out fires. Luckily, there's a way to work simpler with Builder Trend. I'm a huge advocate for using technology to help run AFT, and Builder Trend is one of the most crucial tools I rely on to keep me on top of every detail. Built just for home builders and remodelers, this is an easy to use platform that helps manage all aspects of my business. My team's been using Builder Trend's project management platform for the last five years. And we love that they're always improving and adding new features to make our lives easier. This is something that we've really tried to take on internally to find ways to improve our system every day. Build a Trend just released a full set of financial services, added new tools like Takeoff to make estimates more accurate, and launched a total rebrand with a new mission to help change the future of construction. And we are on board. To learn more about how Build a Trend can help calm the chaos in your construction business, Visit buildatrend.com backslash AFT. When you schedule a demo, you'll receive an exclusive 60-day money-back guarantee only available to my podcast listeners. I'm following Build a Trend into the future in construction. Come on board with us. It's kind of like an orchestra that all comes together. It's really just lovely because the Olympics is athletics at its you know highest level. And some of these kids, they only get one chance. Imagine if you're a professional football player you go you have the opportunity to go to the Super Bowl the very next year because it's every four years there's a lot of turnover and you you may not get that chance again which I think magnifies the pressure on these athletes and it also makes the moment bigger and the stage bigger so welcome to the AT construction podcast and I'm super excited today because we have Molly Solomon with us welcome Molly well, thank you for inviting me. We've been trying to get this done for a long time, and it's the year anniversary of us meeting. So I'm so excited to finally be able to do this with you. Yeah, so Molly's been uh, super busy. And just a little background. So Molly has, uh, you have your Emmy behind you because you're now Emmy Award winner. So that's in your office behind you. We just won it on Monday night. So we're still on the high of winning a sports <laughs> Emmy Award. Love to take these home and you get to have bookends and things like that. And it's a great cocktail. You know, when people come over, they're like, can I touch the app? <laughs> well, it's pretty exciting. It's funny because I, you know, I actually listen to Deb Patrick's show, you know, that's kind of my sports affiliation there. And uh, I know they've been nominated, but she hasn't won and they kind of have a running joke on the show. So it's, it's a big deal. So uh, Molly, I mean, it just shows to what you've done. And I think uh, for those listening, you're the executive producer and president of NBC Olympics production and also the executive producer of the Golf Channel. So uh, no small tasks. There's no re small responsibilities there for you. But if you're going to be uh, oversee two different things, what's better than golf in the Olympics? It takes <laughs> yeah. you to some pretty spectacular places. Yeah, and what's really neat, so Molly's actually a really good golfer. So just a quick background she mentioned. So uh, you were on family vacation in Kauai. We were on family vacation. I randomly set up a tea time. I was grouped with you and Jeff, your husband. And uh, we had so much fun that we booked another round and I had to come back and tag along with both of you again later that week. It was so much fun. And, you know, that's what I love about golf, right, is that you unexpectedly meet some, you know, some really good friends. And and in the course of us talking, um, I was like, wait, do you know Tara Lipinski? You're like, do I know Tara Lipinski? So you ultimately, <laughs> you always have some sort of connection to people. And I just love folks that want to have fun and and want to make conversation. You are immediately our kind of guy. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. It's funny you say that. I mean, not to go too off topic, but it's inter interesting about business development. You mentioned there's something about when you have that time, golf course is great because, you know, it's a really competitive sport. You know, there's a lot of focus, but then there's downtime too, where 
you know, we have time to catch up about, you know, you and Jeff and your story and history. And of course you get the Olympics. And then, you know, I know we spoke about Taylor Pinsky who follows us on Instagram, which is a small world. And then the podcast and you're like, I'd come on. And I'm like, no way. Cause I don't, and, and just a little background, Molly's been preparing for Paris Olympics, which we'll get into. So you've had a lot on your plate in production that I want to talk about, but, but I do love that aspect of golf to me, uh, you know, just friends such as yourself. And here we are connecting, you know, via zoom call today. Right. I think that golf is the greatest networking sport. And Amber would say that's really, that's apparent. But also as a woman in sports, it's really important to have that connection to the people you meet and also the people you work with. So in a lot of ways, I think golf um, helped me in my career pathing. And I always encourage other women, you know, to take part in it. One, it's a great networking, but you know, you're outside for four hours a day. So I think in so many ways, golf is essential to conducting business. So I'm sure it's for you as well. Yeah, we, there, there's a lot of business, you know, most of my clients play, especially, you know, I'm in Scottsdale. So it's kind of the golf Mecca, everyone golfs down here. And so it's a big thing. So I've really had to get into it and, and, and get my game up to par and Molly's really good. How's that affected, you know, as you look, especially being involved in the golf channel, how has you, you know, your skill set in playing golf, you know, understanding the game, you know, you mentioned how it's helped you in your career, but how specifically, especially relating to the content you're putting out there, you know, the executive production, as well as just the players themselves. What's so unique, I think, about Golf Channel, and Golf Channel was the first single sport network that was ever launched. So now we have MLB Network, NFL Network, there's NHL Network, but the first, the OG, was Golf Channel back in 1995, and Arnold Palmer, Arnold Palmer actually started it. And I think what's always been in the DNA of Golf Channel is being for the passionate fan, being authentic to the game. And when I joined Golf Channel in 2012 as their executive producer, that was immediately apparent to me, is that one, I needed to get to know six different tours, but also the passion of the employees was so palpable and the talent knows their sport so very well. So I actually, I love the game when I moved down there, when I say moved down to move to Orlando, which was the headquarters of Golf Channel. But also I felt a, a lot of pressure actually to improve my golf game because when you live in the Northeast, I mean, you really what play four or five months. There was also, we have triplets. So it was kind of hard at that point to work on my game. And I was kind of embarrassed. I was like, shoot, I can't be an 18 handicap for life. And you know, I'm not that, <laughs> not that great, but I set a, a goal to break 80, but also, you know, you want to be able to play in programs. You want to be able to, you know, spend time with, with, with players and things like that. So I actually, you know, set some goals to, to be better at golf, just to, I think personally, to just feel better about myself and my game. And heck, that's, that's a fun kind of work thing. Oh, I got to go work on my golf game because I work for golf channel, but I always felt that pressure to do it. It's interesting because you're, you're a really outgoing person. I'm sure anyone that listens to this can feel that, you know, and you know, I, I'm sure that really, um, you know, has been a big part, especially in your role, right. As executive producer of the Olympics and golf channel. I mean, there's a lot of people you're overseeing, you know, management's really important. And I, I was reading an article and it was talking about physical activity and, you know, it was saying that, you know, um, whether there's gym or golf, being outside, you know, being active, there's, there's a correlation there, right. To people's like happiness and confidence. And the reality is in your position, it'd be really easy. I'd imagine Molly that you're not working short hours. I know for us in construction and, 
you, you know, a lot of us are putting in a lot of time, right? It's just reality to be successful in our profession. But how important is that outlet that you have time, you know, whether you focus on yourself and to be outside in the elements and, you know, golf is a great leisure activity, but, you know, you're super active and I'm sure that leads to just confidence in the workplace and especially as, you know, just the visionary aspect of your job. I, I think it's both golf and it's also working out um, is such it's such an essential part of the day for me. And it's funny because uh, between we had two Olympics in a row, really, within six months of each other. And I've always been a runner for life. And then I became a huge, you know, spinning enthusiast and 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 have way too many Peloton bikes. <laughs> and between the two Olympics, I kind of got it got lost. Like, you know, it's really easy to stop doing and it's harder to start again. And once I started working out again, really consistently, I realized what I had been missing, like that outlet of stress. It's, it's an incredible, incredible well-being tool. You know, I think I replaced it with red wine, which wasn't, (laughs) but doing that and then making sure that, you know, on Wednesday nights, my kids ended up going off to college and I was like, Wednesday night, I'm going to go hit balls, even in Stamford, Connecticut, because I found a heated, um, lighted range, but you know, the combination of working out in the morning and just knowing that I'm working on my golf game and or even putting in, in, in the apartment during the cold um, uh, Connecticut winters has been, it's just, it's so good for up here, which I think then opens your mind to everything else. And, and now, um, so I spend half my day, half my time up, up in Connecticut. I'm at NBC sports headquarters. Um, there you can see my pin flag from the Rio Olympics when, uh, when golf returned to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And then my family still lives down in Orlando. We moved a uh, golf channel from Orlando up here to Stanford. And, um, but I go home on weekends cause you know what? You got to play golf, got to play golf. So that's, gotta, the, that's the thing. Yeah. You got to play golf. So how, how did that come into play? I mean, you mentioned the golf came into the Olympics and that was just recent, mm-hmm. uh, you know, background, you know, to make that happen and, and bring that back as an Olympic sport. We were very excited. You know, when you look back, um, so golf was in the Olympics like in 1904 um, or 1908, I should know this, which was the last time I did know it in 2016. And, you know, when you look at the Olympics and what it tries to be, it tries to crown the greatest athletes in their respective sports. Um, and it makes sense in swimming and gymnastics and, and athletics that that track and field, that that's the pinnacle. But you saw also that basketball has been in the Olympics for many, many years. And in 1992, the IOC opened its doors to professionals because increasingly it's become very murky between amateurism and professionals. But they really got comfortable first in 1988, bringing in uh, professional tennis players. And then, of course, the dream team in uh, Mm -hmm. 1992. So I think it was really um, a natural evolution of um, an extension of that because the only real um outside of the nfl i mean baseball was in the olympics at that time but but golf wasn't and so it really was a journey um by the international golf federation to bring it back into the olympics and it was super important that professional golfers both lpga and pga tour were supportive and would take time out of their schedule and it took all of these governing bodies to come together for many many years to create because you know they plan schedules for years in advance how are we going to you know stop 
up the season really. And there's a lot of majors during that time, but they did, they, they found a way to, um, to stop their season, at least for, for a portion of the world's top golfers. And um, so in 2016, it returned to the games and there were some, there were some hitches because Zika was, um, was a big deal. And, um, and things like that. But when, when you saw what happened with Justin Rose, it was, it was truly remarkable and in B park on the women's side and, and then come Tokyo. And even though the Tokyo Olympics were held during a pandemic, um, all the big names came and it's hard to make your team because only two golfers um, per country. So it was really, really difficult to make that team, but they did. It's, it's interesting you bring that up. I, there's a lot of correlation analogy just to our business, right? You think about um, to, to build a custom home, there's so many different elements and coordination and management and foresight and all these different things that come into play. What people don't realize what you're speaking to golf specifically is it's not like you just had the PGA tour. I mean, you had the European tour. I mean, there's other tours around the world from Asia and all over. And you're trying to get all these governing bodies, as you mentioned, to agree to have a gap in the schedule so they could be at the Olympics. Cause not only do you have to have the buy-in from the athletes, but you have to have the buy-in from all these different, you know, to make sure that there's no tour events that same time as the Olympics. And then there's travel involved and everything else. And so it, it's, you know, it's funny because you walk through that, but in my mind, I'm thinking it's a lot more convoluted and complicated than people realize. It is. And it's kind of like the Olympics itself. All of this is so complicated. And, and, you know, nobody at home should know about those complications, right? It's our job, just like it's your job to pull it off, right? In the end, what they see is not everything that goes into it. But sometimes you kind of wish people understood, right? The complexity of what you do. I, I think it's really important. Maybe this platform could be some of that to understand the complexity, Molly, because as you think about the Olympics, you mentioned you had two and six months and I just can't imagine because <laughs> I know how, how you've been working on Paris. We talked about this a year ago and again, we're prepping for, you know, 2024 next summer. So, you know, preparation, when you're looking at summer Olympics, this is such a big event. What does that time preparation look like for you? So to take you through the bigger timeline, uh, an Olympic city is usually chosen seven years before, um, and we usually get to know, once they name an Olympic host city, we'll get to know um, um, the leadership and, and, and just better understand some of their goals and, and just the overall planning um, for those cities. Because every single Olympic city and plan is different. And then um, once, once the preceding games is over, either summer or winter, that's when we go into full-on planning mode. So it really is a, I would say, three and a half year planning cycle. Um, and, and I say that because you do want to finish one, I'll use summer just because we're heading into a summer cycle. Um, you try to, you take all the learnings from that previous Olympics and things change, media consumption trends change. So you really need to live it before you truly start planning for the next one. But then you go into, um, I would say overdrive because um, in so many ways, you know, while the U.S. is the biggest broadcaster when it comes to an Olympics, there's over 100 broadcasters. And so imagine for the International Olympic Committee planning for all of these journalists, all of these broadcasters going in. So um, we have to start planning so many years out and and even um, we have in, for example, Paris next summer. Um, so it's 13 months away, 14 months away, 
but we've had to submit for all of our camera positions, all of our number of cameras. We have our hotel rooms that have to be finalized by September 1, so a year in advance. So really, our plan for next year, next summer, um, has to be done now. So it's it's a crazy planning cycle, and there's room to Obviously, you know, when you have opportunities with either different talent or a couple of different things, you can you can make changes. But I don't think anybody understands, you know, the long tail of all of this. Um, but and, and, and sometimes it gets a little frustrating, right, because you're building, building, building for something that's not a year away. Um, and and I, I do like the high of making content every single day, which so when you juxtapose my two jobs, Golf Channel is a 24-7 network and the Olympics is a long term planning um, exercise. And I would say also, um, you know, we plan for a summer and a winter Olympics at the very same time. So that layers in two different things. So, well, we'll be in. Paris a lot this summer. Um, looking forward to the summer of 2024. Equally so, in in March of um, 2024, we'll be in Italy for two weeks in Milan, Cortina. So um, there's a lot of different things. So you're planning for biathlon and table tennis at the very same time. It's incredible. I mean, it's just amazing to hear the background of that. What's what's fascinating is you mentioned um, media consumption and. I can only imagine, especially as you've been involved with the Olympics, how that's changed, especially now, right? With streaming, um, we've seen how cables changed. As you look at media consumption, how maybe it's not you specifically, Molly, but I'm sure your team, you're really looking at how people are, are bringing in content, right? For us, content's king, right? It's really important that a lot of people just outside of this are looking, well, how do I grow you know, my brand? Well, the reality is there's consistency is a big part of it. You know, content's a big part of it, making sure you're on different platforms, there's different demographics. How does that plan to NBC that, um, you know, typically would be broadcast, you know, on NBC, right? That was how it was. And now you're dealing with all these different streaming devices and people just consume information different now. Yeah. And think of the complexity that it's at. There's, there's opportunity and also complexity, Brad, I would say. Um, I worked in Olympics from 1990 to 2012 and produced the primetime show in London and then decided to make a change and, and, and went to oversee Golf Channel. But it was so good to take a break and then come back to the Olympics seven years later for Tokyo. But I also, I, don't, I think I underestimated the increased complexity just with platforms, but also there's such a liberation because you get to do different things on different platforms. So you can appeal to the casual fans on NBC, the casual sports fans with our coverage, but then you could take our DSC service like streaming on Peacock and say, hey, what do we want to do here that's additive that can appeal to the super fan? And then of course you're speaking in a different voice and all the different social handles um and, and things like that so it's it's also gratifying that you get to use and flex different muscles but also satisfy the fans in a different way than we ever could before so um it's much more complex but i think we were better storytellers because of that well i think it's interesting to bring up peacock now because that's all of us have access to that, right? I have that. And so it's another way, especially if you're a little bit more of a hardcore fan, because one of the challenges I, I can imagine from your aspect or from your side is that being in Paris, there's a time change. What do we, I mean, I'm in Arizona, typically about nine hour, right? Time change from here to Paris. Maybe it's eight, depending on time of season, but so, so you're dealing with off hours. And of course I'd imagine there's all of us know for the casual fan, you're trying to create storylines and production. And so, cause they're tuning in, you know, after work. So there's a prime time that you're looking at, 
But for those streaming, how how are you approaching Olympics different this year with streaming, with Peacock, so that if there are devout fans to a certain sport, they have that access, you know, at 2 in the morning or 9 a.m., you know, as opposed to just primetime view, um, viewership? What I love, when we start, when we were presented Paris, and you take a look first, as you just alluded to, first you take a look at the time difference, and you're like, what can we do with this time difference? And um, for the East Coast, it's plus six, plus plus nine for the West Coast. So we look at the competition day, and we're like, oh my gosh, we can show to the East Coast, we can be live all day and show competition live from Paris. And so that's what we announced a couple of weeks ago, is that on NBC, we'll have the Today Show in um, in Paris from 7 to 9 a.m. Telling They're the, our best, you know, megaphone for all the hype and, and everything that's happening in the host city. And then every day from 9 a.m. till 6 p.m., we're going to be live with the most popular marquee sports um, on NBC. And actually, this is a departure for us because in the past, um, we've, we've saved the best stuff for at night on primetime or we used... Um, or we used Peacock as also a place to put it, but to, again, save the best stuff for nighttime. And now we're not going to do that. So on NBC in the middle of the day, and Mike Tirico actually is going to be hosting, our primetime host is also going to host in the afternoon. And so what you're going to be able to do, Brad, if you're a swimming or a track you know, aficionado, swimming, gymnastics, and track, which are the most popular sports, are going right. to be live between 2 and 5 in the afternoon, which we think is going to give the Olympics you know, really a boost because we didn't have that in Tokyo. And we've also simplified where you can find things because that's sometimes um, a question for the viewer. Where can I find stuff? Because NBC is giving you everything, but it can be overwhelming. Now we can point to it and say, you can find it on NBC and we're going to be streaming it on Peacock. And then when we get to prime time at eight o'clock, and that's where the majority of our consumption is because people come home, right? And they said, okay, now I have time to sit down and watch the Olympics. Maybe they didn't watch it in the afternoon. And so what we've done is say, okay, eight o'clock Eastern is two o'clock in the morning in Paris. So there's nothing live going on, but it gives us the opportunity to take the best of the day and put it in a really dynamic three hour show. And also what we call in TV jargon, that turnaround time gives us the opportunity to do richer storytelling, to include athlete profiles, to have backstage access to make sure that we've got the best technology and the replays and explaining what happened that day, social media reaction, reaction from back home in the States. So we're going to really provide, I think, richer storytelling in those three hours. We're going to blast off with gold medals every night. So if you want to have your watch the original miniseries, it's going to be the 17 days of the Olympics. So we got to tear everybody away from their habit of going to their iPad and their connected TV and going to those other platforms and come to the Olympics. Um, and, I, and I do think it's going to build in momentum all day long because there's going to be lots of cool, fun stuff happening that everyone's going to be talking about on social. And we're really thinking that this is going to lead into everyone enjoying it again at night, but in a, a much uh, 
richer storytelling kind of way, which we're really excited about. Now, you asked about Peacock, and I love to talk about Peacock, and I have to, I have to hold myself back, Brad, because we haven't announced everything yet, so I can't go too deep on Peacock. <laughs> what I think, though, is important is um, is all of us have all our different streaming subscriptions. You know, for like five or six dollars, you can watch the whole Olympics on Peacock, and I think that's that's going to be revolutionary for people. They're like, where can I find it? You can find it on Peacock, all of it. So you could watch simulcasts of all the regular networks like NBC and watch primetime. But you also, if you're a track and field fan, will have that single sports stream. So everything is going to be on Peacock. We actually have some really cool original stuff, but I just can't break news today with you, Brad. But I'll have more next year on it. Well, I'm glad you you left that teaser. I mean, just a little back. I did track and field in high school. So, of course, I didn't mind too much. Yeah, and high jump. So... I've always been a big aficionado of high jump and you know, oh. when it's, when you can stream it and, and find it, it's, it's a lot easier to follow. Right. As opposed to, cause I understand where the networks are going to want to kind of showcase key elements. What's as, as you were talking through this, what was interesting to me is, you know, I think about editing and putting content out there. What's really challenging is, uh, you know, you're going to have during the day, whether it be TikTok or Instagram, you're going to have these stories happening events, you know, award winners. I mean, it could photo finish, whatever it is, you know, some big things happening, how quick is that turnaround time? Because as you're seeing this happen and maybe trend on social media, you, you may have already planned, okay, Molly, here's kind of our agenda for, um, you know, prime time back in the States. So we kind of have our stories and we kind of have our background, but there's going to be things happening, events live. You're like, okay, well, how do we coincide and like edit yeah. this and put this in? So on, just take us on like a normal day for you. If it's, mm-hmm. you know, Olympics, July in Paris, it's a Wednesday and this stuff's happening. Maybe not chaotic, but how chaotic is it? that stuff's happening and you're editing, you know, the game plan for that nightly shoot, you know, with uh, Mike Tariq or whoever may be, you know, announcing. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, this is the fun part of our job, that if you have a plan and it's a really solid plan, then you can also freelance, right? Because mm-hmm. things happen that you don't expect and you want that to happen. I will say that um, there's some unexpected, but not a lot. How things play out, you never know. But we have an amazing um, research team, Olympic athlete research team. And that's how I started actually um, in 1990. And so we have kids that are traveling the world for the two years leading up to the Olympics. And they're, they're, they're creating biographies of these athletes. So we know if there's a really special story in an event, but they also go to all of these national championships and world championships so we can handicap the events. And so we go in with a really solid plan. So you'll get a shooting star or something unexpected or the way it plays out is really compelling. And we will make room in that night's rundown for it. And you have to really be open-minded about it. It's so hard, right? Because you've got a plan. It's really easy to stick to the plan. But the harder part is to embrace surprise. But I mean, that's the best part of the Olympics. And sometimes you don't know what the public is going to actually tap into and find really interesting. So that's where the turnaround time that I talked about, all of a sudden we'll see that everybody's actually talking about this. Maybe we expand how we, how we covered that. Um, So that'll give us that opportunity, but uh, it, it goes back to like right now, I've actually looked at, so we're, what, 14 months before the Olympics. We actually have looked at um, first blush Olympic primetime rundowns for the first seven days of the Olympics. And so 
you're starting to put the pieces together, which is what I love about my job is creating the best possible shows. And, um, and then we'll, you'll start to fill in the blanks as, you know, the athlete, uh, the star athletes or the, the stories, the rivalries come together. Well, let's move that around. Let's do, let's elevate this. Let's give this more time. But, you know, for example, on Sunday night, um, the first Sunday night, we're going to have women's team gymnastics qualifying. And that's extremely popular. We know that Tuesday night is the women's team final and Thursday is the women's all around. We're going to give that a lot of play. So there's some things you know that you're always going to do a lot with, but you never know when there's a U.S. anthem or a surprise U.S. gold medalist in rowing that we will make room for. And those those are the fun decisions to make. I love that you brought that up. It's uh, again, you know, I think I contextualize this, you know, how to apply sus and just a little background. We have, you know, our projects can be really complex and it's really important, you know, that there's planning and coordination well in advance, right? Before we even put a shovel on the ground and then eventually, uh, you know, I, where we get in trouble is maybe moving ahead without doing the proper research or, you know, have everything specified and contracted, you know, it can put us in a tough spot. One thing that I never just took into consideration is for you planning. It's one thing to think about, okay, we're looking out 14 months out, you know, our set, our production, but you mentioned you have Olympic research team, right? Mm -hmm. I've never even thought about that. I feel like I'm pretty involved in the sports world, you know, to some extent, but it's really smart to have them out there to really understanding, um, you know, favorites and uh, who's winning right now. And, um, you know, where those stories will be, because I'd imagine that research really comes into play, as you mentioned, that now you're already building you know, seven days out and you're still 14 months until, until mm-hmm. we kick off. It's so nice, but also, and think about the value that is to our announcers. So even more than to us for our announcers to have really rich biographies of athletes from Romania or somewhere that they may not get to see. Um, and, and also I would say our statisticians that are on site during the games, they provide so much perspective. So there's a team, I think it's worth saying there's 3000 people that work on the summer Olympics. Wow. So, so 3000 from NBC. 3000, but think about the unsung heroes. Cause it's, is I actually talked about in my Emmy speech earlier this week, you know, it's human resources that gets you there. It's security that keeps you safe. It's our operations people that can you imagine the database and trying to fly all these people to the Olympic city. And when you get them there, it's transportation. Um, so there's so many people that contribute to, to this army, of, of, you know, production and engineering and technical folks that, um, that work in the Olympic city. But I should also say, you know, we've, we've gotten really good at remote production and that happened during the pandemic. And, and actually we, we dabbled in it in the Olympics earlier because I'm sitting in Stanford, Connecticut at NBC sports headquarters, which really is a state of the art production facility. So why should we just go to the Olympic city and rebuild everything that we have here? So interestingly, um, while our main venues, our big venues um, of the most popular sports will be in Paris, um, the control room for primetime, where I'll be based, is actually going to be back here. So I'll go to the Olympics. I mean, I go every two months to Paris. So I've had a lot of Paris trips, but (laughs) why would I build a control room there that's probably 15 miles from the venues, if 
I can be here and, and technically, you know, our control rooms are built, they're state of the art, as I said. So um, we, we pick and choose, but actually the com it just shows the, um, the complexities of, of production. So in the past, everybody was in the Olympic city. And now I would say that for Paris, we'll have 1000 people um, in Europe and we'll have 2000 people actually right in this building. This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers. Because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to, to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. They're, their company culture, their integrity, their honesty, you know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. That's incredible. I mean, it's just amazing to think about just the production aspect, right? And the amount of people it takes to pull this off. As you think about the speakers, Mike Tarico and others that are involved with the broadcast, you mentioned the preparation, right? Um, the statisticians you have behind the scenes that are giving really valuable information. You know, there's name pronunciation. Right. Because you're, you're dealing with names all over right, the world. Right. Got to get it right. You, you got to look super educated. Amount of prep time. I know this isn't really involved in your role, but I'd imagine that you're pretty close to the vest to understand at least some of this. Most of us just see people come in and speak on these things without realizing the amount of prep. What what goes into prep for those that are hosting the Olympics that you're producing, the amount of time they're putting in behind the scenes and the amount of information you have prepared for them? I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, some of the sports are 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 not called, you know, every week in this country. So we try to make our announcer assignments about a year out. So that gives the play-by-play, -play, and that's the, the person that actually, you know, narrates the action. And then you pair that person with an analyst, and that's usually, it's a former athlete who um, probably competed at a very high level. Um, and we also always look for Olympians if we, we can, we can um, find them, and you pair them together. And really their work, you know, could start a year out, but if they're if they're in the space already, you know, they're, they're really into their sport and they're following it a lot and watching world championships and things like that. Um, we give seminars in the lead up, you know, about one, um, you know, what can be really complex editorial topics, um, like, you know, what's the state of, you know, gymnastics in the world? What's the state of, 
um, drug testing, you know, so they can speak to all of these different um, these different topics that are going to come up. And we also, you know, do refresh sessions on best practices in television. Like I'll give you an example, you know, in a big moment, don't talk over it, like give it room to breathe. Um, I, I think you'll, if you, if you listen for that, um, like in the NBA finals coming up or something like that, you'll notice that the announcers pull back a little bit in that, in that moment, just to, to let the crowd roar, to let the player react play out um, and then they'll fill in fill in you know the perspective and make the call but you know all those different things we will we will um, we will refresh our announcers and a lot of the analysts we hire are former athletes who don't have a lot of experience in the space people like rowdy Gaines in swimming has been around forever but um, he always tells me you know I love when I hear all these um, best practices in the lead up so we'll do a lot of that in the Olympic year same thing with the producers directors we'll bring them in and and talk about what the vision is for um, for this production and just to make sure we're all on the same page but when it all comes together it's kind of like an orchestra that all comes together and um, it, it's it's really just lovely because the Olympics is athletics at, it, at its you know highest level and some of these kids they only get one chance imagine if you're a professional football player you go you have the opportunity to go to the Super Bowl the very next year because it's every four years there's a lot of turnover and you you may not get that chance again which I think magnifies the pressure on these athletes and you saw that you hear from a lot of the athletes about that but um, it, it also makes the moment bigger and the stage is bigger. It's interesting you bring that aspect up because true, I mean, the reality is with Olympics, I mean, it could be injury. It could be, I mean, there's a lot of circumstances that play into these unique windows for them to perform. The, the preparation is fascinating because for anyone that's watched any production, any sports production, you, you mentioned that, yeah, the, some of the most iconic um, sports, you know, memories we have, the announcer was quiet. You know, you kind of hear the, the energy of the, of the crowd and, for those, as, as you broke down, you know, you have like the color commentators and the analysts and, you know, so you have people that have different aspects to run the production. Um, and, and, and by doing that, it's that preparation, but it's the training, I, you know, to focus on this aspect, it's really important for any company to be successful. If you're going to be successful in any business, it's one thing to have the vision. It's another thing to have the game plan and preparation, but training and training is so often overlooked. I know in my business, it is, I, too many times in my career, especially when I first came out of college and I was working in my field, you know, it's this mentality where we're going to kick you off the pier and you're going to swim or you're going to sink and we'll hire someone else, you know? So you kind of have this, you know, this mentality without understanding, well, if we have training, if we can instruct, now we can actually, and even someone that's maybe a, you know, super seasoned, if we continue to train, now they're going to be able to excel in their craft, right? And it's going to be more in line with where we are. And it's interesting to hear that here you are, you're out, that you're already training, mm -hmm. you know, those that have been doing this a long time that have a ton of experience already. You just, you can't take anything for granted, right? And the, the microscope and um, the spotlight on the Olympics is is very great. So you don't want to leave anything to happenstance. And, and like you said, I think it's good to have training. It's a good to re be reminded of, you know, I, I hesitate to say rules because they're not rules, but um, I, I do think best practices for everybody is it's, it's always good. It's like we have internal, you know, um, diversity training and just reminding ourselves of 
being good to each other. Like it sounds ridiculous, but it's super important. It's why you do team building and culture building exercises. Like if you, if you're never reminded of all of this, you might, you might lose track of it. Especially when you have 3000 employees just for, for one production plus more, you know, I mean, not, not counting the HR and everybody else. As, as you look into um, camera positions, you mentioned that that was pretty unique. Um, this far in advance, what, what does that look like? Are you, when you're in Paris and you're working with your production team, I, I'm sure some of the venues are completed or nearing completion. And so do you have a good idea? I would imagine that every network all throughout the world has their own, you know, points that they can put cameras and have those shots and camera angles. How complex is that? Cause you mentioned there's over a hundred, you know, media outlets around the world working with the other media outlets, working with the Olympic committee, just to make sure you have certain camera angles and the technology there to get the content that you need? Um, there's a couple of different ways to answer this question. One is from a builder perspective, probably interesting to you guys is that um, Paris, sustainability is a really important um, priority for the International Olympic Committee. You just don't want to go to these cities and to build white elephants, right? It's just, it, it doesn't work. And now the cities that you're going back to in the Summer Olympics have a lot of great stadiums. I know LA in 2028 doesn't want to build anything. You rehabilitate, you refresh, you, you know, things like that, but you remodel, but you don't want to build new stadiums. And so when you look at Paris, they're going to, it's going to be fascinating and beautiful because they're going to use the iconic landmarks and background of that magnificent city as really the backdrop for the Olympics. And so that means that there, you know, there's no room to build in Paris, right? So you're going right. to lose what's there. So for example, um, at La Défense Arena, which is home to swimming, but it's usually, I believe it's a rugby arena and a lot of concerts and things like that, but they're going to build a pool, <laughs> but they're not going to build it till of course, like four weeks I can't remember the date, but it's a temp stadium. And they're trying to use existing structures and build temp stadiums, temp stands, things like that. So you're not, you know, wasting people's money. And um, it's super, super smart, but it's also really hard from our perspective because you can't go look at the swimming arena and to place cameras, you know, we use, we use CADs and you use your imagination and we've gotten good at it because in Beijing, we never got to the Olympic city because of COVID to place a camera. So we, we know what we're doing. We have an amazing coordinating director and a lot of our directors at the individual sports have done that sport before. So um, we we can manage that. I will say in terms of, this is kind of an interesting fact, I'm sure your listeners don't know, is that um, for an Olympics, there actually is a world feed, like a host feed. Um, it's like the feed you see during the soccer World Cup. So the entire world sees the same thing. And the International Olympic Committee creates a world feed at all of the sports. Um, what we do at NBC is at the most popular sports, we actually um, create very much a unilateral feed because we know the way we want to cover it, but also the U.S. stories are so very important. So at swimming, gymnastics, and track and field, we will cut our own show, which requires a lot of cameras, and we're side-by-side side with the world feed, but we, we may want more backstage cameras and things like that, and that's the work we do with the um, International Olympic Committee. And then you take, um, let's say, a sport like beach volleyball, for example, which 
is going to be at the base of the Eiffel Tower. Oh, no way. Rockin', amazing. Awesome. Can't wait. I imagine daytime will look one way at night. Ooh. But the the World Feed is terrific. And we are, we're always talking with our partners at Olympic Broadcasting Services. And we look at their camera plot and everything they have planned. And we're like, you know, that's really good. And we know who their producers and directors are. We've seen them produce it in the prior Olympics. And we're really satisfied with that base feed. So then what we do on top of that is place cameras that we can personalize it or create um, create um, more of it, maybe telling the story of a U.S. team or if the U.S. isn't in it, we may be focused on something else. So we have a few key cameras that allow us to you know, see the U.S. bench. We can go to the mix zone and interview players afterwards. Maybe we want what we call a friends and family camera where you can focus, Brad, on your wife in the stands who's who's rooting for you. So um, there's different flavors or different levels of venues, um, as we call it. Um, so things like that, but we're really confident in the base feed. And then that allows us to build on it and build storylines. And that's what's super important about the Olympics is that people don't know these athletes, a lot of them. And that responsibility for us is so important. We have to build rooting interests and we have to make sure you know who these athletes are when you, you start watching. We have to get you invested and we do it in a number of ways. It could be through athlete profiles. More often than not, it's using those athlete biographies and all that research we talked about is telling stories about these athletes, right? Letting them know that they're from Phoenix and they went to U of A and they, you know, majored in this and their sister is in, is in Paris watching and she used to compete in beach volleyball. So all these compelling stories. And one of the one of the lessons we learned from the pandemic, actually, and out of adversity comes innovation, is that there were no fans in Tokyo, right? So we deployed cameras all over this country. So we were in your living room have watching your parents watch you in Tokyo to kind of supplant or substitute for the lack of crowds. But out of that, it was a really intimate way, you know, to cheer for everybody is to be with your family physically and also to hear them cheer. The audio was like a revelation. So going to Paris, where we're so excited about fans in the stands, we don't want to forget that you know, not everybody travels to Paris. Maybe your high school, you know, track coach, high jump coach was um, really, really formative in, and you know, your development, but he can't be there. And he's a really great storyline. So we're still going to have cameras on your parents in the stands, but also we may be with your high school high jumping coach. So um, it, it's been really interesting to be able to pull all these different or stitch all these different things together and tell the story of Brad. The, the creativity behind is uh, phenomenal, Molly, because I, I, I will commend you. I mean, NBC has done such a great job with the Olympics for so many years, and there is a rooting interest, right? You, you, you find yourself in so many of these Olympics because, as, as you mentioned, some of these games and events aren't like the normal day-to-day -day that some of us are familiar with and understand. And so to really capture not just and an contextualize, you know, how the event works, how it operates, you know, the importance of it and who the athletes are, and you mentioned seeing their families or coaches or mentors they've had in their life are so important. And the sustainability is interesting because I've fortunately been to Paris and I think anyone that's been to Europe understands that, you know, there's a reason you have small cars in Europe. They're, they're not going to fit down most <laughs> of the streets. So, so access and, um, 
you know, construction, you don't want to happen without calling out some other cities, but there's been other cities yeah. that built these big structures. Now they're abandoned. It's really sad to see what's happened right in the, in those cities. And so they're trying to be more, um, compatible to Olympics and, you know, sustainable, as you mentioned, and, you know, by hosting these events, similar waste management open, you're uh, going back to golf here in Phoenix, mm-hmm. we have the waste management and we set up those structures and it looks like this incredible stadium and yeah. And they're gone. And then they're gone and you go right now because my office is actually, it's like right across the street from waste management. And so it's gone. It's just, you know, it doesn't look like a whole lot right now. Crazy, right? Yeah, it's crazy. But going back to building the set, because you always do these amazing sets, right? Mm -hmm. When you're in Paris and at the Olympics. And you mentioned that when the city's announced, you're meeting with the IOC committee. um, I'd imagine that all these countries want to have an amazing set. How do you, I don't want to say fight for it, but how do you capture the area that's going to be allotted to you for the mm-hmm. U.S. and the production at NBC, being that there's a lot of countries and people competing for a really good space and backdrop. Yeah. It, it's interesting to tell you about the evolution of our thoughts on that. In the past, um, I would say through, well, I'll take you all the way up to Tokyo. We are, There's an international broadcast center, which as you imagine, you need a hub in an Olympic city where all the broadcasters can operate out of, all the feeds come through. Um, and that's kind of the gathering point or the central nervous system of the Olympics, the international broadcast center. And um, in the past, NBC, we built a primetime studio and all of our studios in that building because it had great connectivity. If anything went wrong, we were all together. We could make decisions. We had the set right there, weather permitting, all of that. Um, and we could change the, the backgrounds, you know, behind Bob Costas, behind Mike Tirico. And, and it, it worked very well. But then we decided that we wanted to be outdoors. We wanted to feel more you know, um, closer to the host city and to bring that personality in. And so to your question of real estate in Tokyo, um, it was before I came back, but I know the story behind behind the team, what what they decided to do is they knew they want, they just didn't, they just didn't want a screen behind Mike Trico. They wanted to have him there. And so we found a Hyatt balcony or Hilton back balcony. Um, and we built a studio. The Today Show used it. So it worked for them because they're always outdoors, closer to crowds. You know, that that it just feels more live. And, and, and so we built that with the Rainbow Bridge in Tokyo behind him. And um, we always have a backup set, you know, close by if there's any breaking news or weather contingencies. And so we did like that. We didn't do that in, in Beijing. Obviously in the winter, it's a different ball game. So we are enclosed and, and you know, we use, um, we use projectors to have some amazing visuals. So you really don't know you're not there, but um, so winter's a different, um, a different animal. And then in Paris, we, it was so much fun. We, we just, you know, those are the surveys you love the most where you go looking for what's the iconic spot where we want to do something. And the starting point always is the Eiffel Tower, right? I mean, it's Arc de Triomphe, sure, but you got to have the Eiffel Tower. I don't think anyone's going to grow tired of that. And so um, we, we went on a survey and um, a friend of mine produces um, the world cup for Fox. He usually Mm -hmm. actually was my predecessor at NBC. And I knew that they had had a really cool set at the Cafe de Lome, which is a restaurant um, at the Place de Trois 
Trocadero, which is the most Instagrammable spot in all of Paris. And um, there were there was this cafe, so I was like, we gotta, you know, date. We gotta go visit this cafe, and it, it's magnificent. And um, the Cafe de Lome will be the the home to um, the Today Show, and we're gonna announce it actually on the Today Show on June seventh. They're gonna be in Paris, but Cafe de Lome, and we're gonna take that and be able to have three different backgrounds where we can do the different shows for today, for prime time, and of course the time of day is different, and then also the Olympic Broadcasting Service, which we rely upon um, our partners and all of this builds every time, every Olympics, they build a TV tower. Because as you alluded to, there's all these different broadcasters who have needs. So it's kind of like a, an apartment complex. It goes three to four stories up and everybody can build out there, or we call it sometimes the Hollywood squares. So that gives you a visual and you can build out your smaller studios. And that's what, you know, Germany might do, Japan might do, China might have a studio. So really the world broadcasters come, come, um, you know, come together and, and, and everybody has similar needs. NBC is just usually bigger. So we go out on our own, but we also will have um, a daytime show um, studio in that TV tower. And that too will have the backdrop of the, of the Olympics. So we go real estate hunting um, every time. And for Milan Cortina, you know, right now we're already thinking about what do we do? We love this whole live backdrop. Um, so maybe we'll be with the, the famous Milan Cathedral Duomo behind Mike Tirico, but then maybe we'll have um, we'll have a, uh, a mountain studio as well. But I think we're moving away from um, monitors um, and more into reality. Mm-hmm. I love that you're doing that. How You mentioned that, uh, that you, you referenced the World Cup and Fox. You know, being in your position, other networks, other executive producers, how important is that networking or communication just to understand maybe challenges or successes they're having and how it relates to you? You know, I look at my peers. There's a lot of peers I have throughout the industry that have made a big impact on me. How does that work in your network, you know, on the production side? I think you always watch what other people are doing, particularly, you know, like in the golf space, NBC and CBS does golf, ESPN does the PGA championship. And you're always looking at what others are doing and, you know, Hey, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Do you steal the, not steal this, but do you, do you do something, but differently? Um, Same thing in football with, um, you know, in college football, everybody's always watching their peers. I watch a lot of other sports because that inspires, you know, innovation in our coverage in different ways. For example, we were just talking about the, you know, the track man line in golf. And we were saying to ourselves, yes. why don't we use that on the throws and track and field? Oh, that'd be like, awesome. That would be really cool. So our one of our um, big initiatives on Olympic um, sports is not only the storytelling where we need to get you invested, but also we think we can use more technology to illustrate the amazing feats of these athletes. So we're working on some surprises for uh, for, for Paris and that being introducing new things, you know, there's lots of cool stuff like the world record line in swimming, um, things like that. But what are there other ways with where we can better explain these Olympic sports that people don't watch every week? Yeah, I think it's really important even for us, you know, auto industry. I mean, there's so many different industries that there's application to us and how can we use some of that content? So I, I, I know you've been super gracious with your time, Molly. I just have a couple of questions because I know how busy you are. Um, favorite part of your job? 
Ooh, telling stories and finding new ways to televise sports. I love putting together shows. Um, so when I say we're working ahead, a year ahead on rundowns, it's because I, what I love to do. I also love to innovate with new announcers and bringing new people into the fold and finding new ways to 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 remind the audience of the Olympics, because you can't just pop up anymore, as we talked about. You've got to be culturally relevant. So we're going to have some prizes, surprises in who's affiliated with the Olympics. So um, I love to make content, Brad. Well, it, it shows because how well you've done, and especially being in the role you're in. Um, quickly, like career path, you know, how does how did you get into this role? You know, I mean, this is... Um, you know, very prestigious opportunity. Of course, there's, I, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. There's a lot of work and um, you alluded to this at the very beginning of the conversation, but, you know, quick career path, you know, to, to even, um, you know, to get to where you are today. I knew I always wanted to work in sports journalism. I didn't know if it was on the writing side or on the TV side. Um, and I got, I just cold called and sent resumes and got a job ultimately with NBC right out of college as a college re as an Olympics researcher. And after those two years, I was Bob Costas's researcher. And um, I think we bonded, we did a good job and they made sure that I, I continued with NBC sports, but I had to go back and learn my craft starting with, you know, graphics. Um, and, and I worked my way up and what I love, and I think it's helped me is doing every job on the way up because you understand teamwork. You understand what everybody's doing. And I, I just love the pressure and the competitive pressure and being in the truck and you're live to the country. And I remember in, in 2010, I was the figure skating producer in Vancouver and my boss, Dick Ebersol got in my ear and he goes, you've got the network for the next 50 minutes. And there's 25 million people watching. <laughs> and there's nothing like that to get your heart beating and everything else but um that really you know and along the way someone assigned me to golf i never lived, picked up a golf club until i was 24 years old and golf has also given me some of the greatest um greatest satisfaction in working on the biggest events in golf but i also met jeff my husband at a golf tournament so um it really he's the love of my life but i would say golf is the love of my life Oh, it's so amazing. It's it's really neat to hear, especially, you know, some of the extracurricular with you mentioned your triplets and golf, of course. And and, and I know you are fortunate to travel based in, in your role, you know, searching these Olympic spots. So for those listening, again, you've been incredible, Molly. I, I really appreciate you making time. Um, again, I know how busy you are and, you know, just get a little insight behind the scenes in production, you know, and there's so much application to any of us that run businesses, entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast. So um, for those listening, of course, we're going to be tuning into Olympics next summer, but you gotta uh, watch next summer, you can watch yeah. all of this come to life, Brad. Oh, we're going to watch it come live. So now this is the kickoff episode and we'll be, we'll be primed and ready for next year. So where can our listeners uh, find you? Uh, you know, when I got off Twitter, <laughs> too much toxicity on Twitter, Brad. So yeah. all I want everybody to do is follow NBC Olympics on Twitter and Instagram, NBC sports on Twitter and Instagram. And make sure to watch NBC and Peacock next summer. And we'll be there. Well, Molly, thanks again. You got it. Thanks, Brad. If you give value from the show, please support us by giving a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And I also have a favorite ask. We've had some incredible guests that come on and share their wisdom, their knowledge about their business. So if you have friends or family members that could benefit from those episodes, please share it with them, as well as any other 
business owners that you're networking with that could get value from the podcast or certain episodes, please share those as well. Again, subscribe, make sure you're following any questions that you have, topics. We've had uh, listeners reach out about certain guests that we should have on the show. Again, brad.l at aftconstruction.com. Email me for topics to address, guests that we should have on, and even if you think you'd be a great guest for the show. So again, thank you for all your support and we'll see you next time.